This is Sarah Stewart-Holland. And this is Beth Silvers. Thank you for joining us for Pantsuit Politics. Welcome to another episode of Pantsuit Politics, where we take a different approach to the news. Today, we're going to talk about a very interesting update on the CDC Youth Risk Behavior Survey that we recently talked about on the show. Then we're going to share our conversation with Representative Derek Kilmer from Washington's 6th Congressional District about his work as the chair of the House Select Committee on the Modernization of Congress. And our conversation with Representative Kilmer took a delightful turn that we are going to share outside of politics today that we can't wait for you to hear. Before we begin, we're so close to the premiere of the final season of Succession, which we are going to be recapping and analyzing on our premium channels. Succession really sits at the intersection of so many fascinating conversations that we have here on the podcast about politics and media and wealth and status. And we cannot wait to expand those through this show with our premium community. So you can find all the links in the show notes about how to be part of those conversations. Up next, the CDC survey and the headlines it provoked about team mental health. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsuit Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain which is bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries. I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less. No thawing required. You can fully customize your wild grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special and they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box and $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. Or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. Last month, we had Dr. Kathleen Ethier on the show. She and I sat down 
about her work at the CDC on the Youth Risk Behavior Survey and some pretty alarming statistics from that survey, specifically with regards to teen girls and sexual assault. You probably saw these statistics. They were everywhere, all over the headlines about this reported dramatic rise in the percentage of teen girls who had been sexually assaulted. Well, thanks to the reporting of the Washington Post fact-checkers, we are learning that these numbers were the result of rounding more precise decimal points and overestimating the increase and the fact that several schools leave out those specific questions. And so the sample size was affected. All that to say, Beth, it looks like this dramatic increase was not so dramatic. Not to say it still isn't a problem that any teenage girl is being subjected to sexual violence in any context. I'm sure that these numbers are still underreported. That's what everything we know about sexual assault suggests. But when we're talking about a rounding error, it's several rounding errors that compound to make a pretty big difference. So the rate of growth highlighted in the CDC's news release was 27%. Calculated with the decimal points, it's 18.4%. So it is a striking difference, and we felt that it was only responsible for us to share this with you and have a conversation about it. Well, and it's so interesting because when I read those statistics, I was like, wait, what? Over the pandemic, Kids were home by themselves. They weren't socializing. And I thought, well, maybe the being at home was exposure to increased risk. But there were so many pieces of this that didn't quite fit or make sense to me. So I'll be honest, when I saw this, I thought, okay, okay. So this wasn't this just out of nowhere meteoric rise that doesn't really align with the other trends we're seeing in teen socialization and teen sexuality and all these other things. Well, we had a conversation on our premium channels when I came back from being sick after you had had this discussion. And I remember us saying, I just don't understand where these numbers came from. And I don't understand the the source of this increase. How do you treat a problem if you can't diagnose it more precisely? And we got flooded with messages from people about the impact of pornography. And while I think that there is an important discussion to have about pornography, and I do not discount any of those messages, that did not explain these numbers to me Mm -hmm. because that phenomenon is not new. And it's not even new as to teens. It might be increasing. It might be more prevalent, uh, especially in certain areas of the country than it's been in the past. But that just didn't click in with me as an explanation for something this big. So I felt relieved when I saw this report, and then also sad because I think institutional trust building for the CDC is so vital. And I don't want to have a conversation where we're just busting on the CDC. I appreciate this work. Doing this survey is so important and shining a light on the real problems here. And there are many real problems is important. I also think accuracy is prized, right? And it's important to be really specific when we're diagnosing issues. Yeah, I'm really confused about how they got here. I mean, all of our interactions as a show with the CDC have been hyper-professional and really wonderful. And so I, I don't understand, you know, I don't know a lot of statistics, but I do know that rounding like this across the board could compound the results in a way that skew the reality of what you're finding. And they've been doing this survey for so many years. Have they always been rounding like this? Like, I don't understand how they got here. I don't understand why there wasn't more effort to communicate. And look, I think a lot of times in science, you know, I was reading something about middle age and how like the psychologists that sort of 
coined the term midlife crisis was like, no, that's not what I meant. Like it happens a lot that that scientists and researchers put information out there and they're like, no, that's not, no, (laughs) not what we meant. I'm not saying that the effects of, you know, lots of data can't be twisted and manipulated at every turn, but I wonder if they'll reevaluate and say, okay, well, we won't release the survey results until we can really release our data sets, which was part of the issue here is you get the survey results before the data sets. I don't know, but I hope that they will communicate more transparently about whatever procedural changes uh, they put in place to prevent something like this happening again. Well, there's really important information in the fact that some schools will not allow the rape and sexual assault questions to be asked. That is headline worthy in and of itself, because we're living through this period where many of us, and as we've discussed, many of us who are sitting in state legislatures act like if we don't talk about something with kids, it will cease to exist. Mm -hmm. And if you are unwilling to present a question about rape to a student body of teens, that's something that we all need to understand and we need to think about, you know, is this really how we want to approach this topic? or not approach it? Do we really want to make this something that we're silent on in the face of kids as though they don't have a real window into what's happening? I'm living this in my life right now. My eighth grader is receiving some sex ed from an outside group. Um, The principal basically communicated to me it's because the teachers don't want to touch this. And I said, well, this curriculum is problematic. It's basically abstinence only, which all our social science says doesn't work. And he's like, well, this is the Kentucky statute that requires me to teach children that the only way to prevent pregnancy and STDs 100 percent is abstinence. Like, it's just so discouraging. It's like all these laws where they try to control something that is inherently amorphous and human and expansive, which is not just humanity, but teenagers, is just such a mess. It's just such a ridiculous disaster. And they're still out there trying to do more and more of it as if you're going to legislate your way, what, out of generational change? I don't understand. I really don't understand. You know, it's the march of history. Each generation is going to be different and more expansive and you know, by degrees less and more understanding than the one before it. And the idea that as a legislator, you're just going to like pass a law and say, stop no further is so ludicrous to me. And it results in such unexpected, but also weirdly predictable outcomes. The other thing that bugs me in this is that I'm worried that we are telling a generation of kids that we think we've ruined them before they reach Mm. adulthood. I want to be honest where there is a crisis, and I do believe, especially around teen girls and self-harm and uh, depression, that we have a lot of important work to do. But I was just talking with a teacher who said district-wide there is a conversation about how exceptional our sixth graders are. District-wide, he said every person he talks to who teaches sixth grade is saying, this class is amazing. They're bright. They're engaged. They're well-behaved. They're enthusiastic. Another anecdote, I talked to the director of our community children's choir about how this choir is the best she's ever had, the best behaved. They sound great. They're enthusiastic. They're engaged. And I thought, I wish that we could just put this on billboards because I think that the narrative is COVID hurt all of them so much. And it did. And I don't want to deny that or bury my head in the sand about it or be in a kind of toxic positivity space. But I don't want to correct for that so hard that we forget to celebrate where kids are excelling. And if we have a trend, 
that is truly that sexual violence against teen girls has been decreasing for several years. And this data, as revised, is actually in line with that trend. I want to be excited about that trend and ask what's been working and how do we keep moving that number down? Well, that's what was interesting is so many people who advocate in sort of the space of like children and violence were like surprised. They were mm-hmm. like, these are not the trends we're seeing. I think the crisis that I see with teens revolves so much around media and our informational environment and us not giving them the tools to navigate that. I see that in porn. The best thing I've ever read about porn and teens was a class, and the class really didn't focus on sexuality. It focused on media consumption because that's what you have to do and what you have to understand about porn is that it's an industry and it's a media. I think that's true when you read this great piece today about Andrew Tate and why young boys were sucked in by the very, very addictive, engaging, emotional media that he was creating. I think that's true of teen girls and social media. We're not teaching them the critical skills to consume media. We have state legislators that are like, I know, we'll just shut it off. Shut off what? At school? You think where they're consuming the most media and learning these lessons is through teachers at school? I wish that was the case. <laughs> I wish I wish that teachers and the time they spend in the classroom had a disproportionate effect to our informational and media and technological environment, and that's before AI really takes off. Like, I wish that was true. I wish we were empowering teachers to tackle this instead of chilling their speech and making them afraid to say anything inside an environment where teens are desperate for tools and strategies and approaches to manage this water hydrant of information coming at them all the time. But the reason we can't teach them that is because we don't really know how to do that either. We haven't really cracked the code on how to deal with porn or the addictive nature of TikTok or, you know, the comparing and joy-stealing reality that is a place like Instagram, right? That's why. And so we're trying to say, well, we'll fix it by doing this over here. That'll make us feel better. Makes us do something. When we're not really paying attention, to me, the real source of all this stress. I think that's 100% right, and I wish that we had more tools as parents. I'm reading this book that is just blowing my mind called Almost Christian about uh, teens' responses to a survey about their faith. And what the book really pulls out is that teens are just a good mirror for adults, and adults do not talk about our faith in a lived way. We don't use vocabulary that explains, here's how faith is influencing my life today. Here's how it influenced this decision I was making It's all very, like, theoretical and out there instead of in here. And that concept is working on me in so many areas that have nothing to do with faith. And I have been thinking especially about media when I pull something up on my phone and the girls are with me or when they show me something that they found on the Internet. I'm trying to do a better job saying, who made this? What were their incentives for making it? Who might have been harmed or exploited in the making of this? For whom was this intended and why? How long ago was it made? Can we even answer those questions? Is there enough transparency? And it can feel like overkill, but where else are they going to get that dialogue that they need to be running internally? And I agree with you. I wish that we had not so tied teachers' hands, even though they're doing some of that good work as much as they can, but tied their hands, especially around issues of sex and sexuality, 
because that's the space where hearing it from multiple adults is going to matter with the highest stakes. Well, and I think the reason we don't do it as adults is because we don't want to come to Jesus with how the media influences us. You know, we think it's working on other people, but we've got our media consumption under control. You know, and I think that's the problem is to teach. (laughs) You have to do. And I think that lots of people, you know, including including myself and, and my husband inside my own family, we use media to numb. We don't ask those hard questions. I think this happens a lot. You sort of wear as a badge of pride the media you use to numb out that you think silly or a guilty pleasure. And you don't say like, I know this is a fun reality show, but it's detrimental. But I'm going to keep watching anyway in this sort of defensive posture instead of articulating to our kids like, this is why I choose not to take this in. You know, like the biggest source of conflict in our family is like the tech Sabbath. I try to enforce every weekend, but I'm not going to give it up. I know it's hard. I know it. it's supposed to be a, a day of rest and really what it creates is conflict. But I'm like just constantly at them like we cannot live here. We have to train our attention spans and our minds and give ourselves a break and ask who wins when we're on screens all the time. Who's benefiting from that? But it's hard. It's really, really hard work because you know what I want to do? I want to just have some peace and quiet. And I have peace and quiet when they're playing Minecraft for three hours. But I have to, like, fight that instinct all the time, all the time. Yeah, I will raise my hand and say my media consumption is definitely not under control. I'm just trying to build the plane while I'm flying, you know, as Mm. as they say. And I think that we all have to do that. And I want to kind of circle back to where we started. I value information and resources from the CDC in that process. It is an important, critical organization. And I am disappointed that the fact-checking on this has not been as solid as I hoped it would be. But I am not writing off the CDC's work by any stretch of the imagination or even the entirety of the survey here, because this is one piece of something that gives us a lot of information about a very important topic. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Just finished A Court of Thorns and Roses and craving another fantasy world to devour? Dipsy's got you. Dive into spicy enemies to lovers' tales or embark on an epic romance between immortal fae and sworn foes. They've got fantasy romance stories perfect for your morning walk, late night, or long bath. Dipsy is an app full of short, spicy audio stories. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods and goddesses, Regency-era historical fiction, and fairy smut to explore the bounds of your pleasure. New content is released every week, so in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to dipsea stories.com slash pantsuit. 
dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. If you're looking for a very quick salon quality, but not salon priced manicure, Olive and June has you covered. We've talked about Olive and June's Manny system before. It has everything that you need for a professional manicure in one box, salon grade tools, your choice of six polishes. Those polishes are gonna last you for seven days or more. The cost breaks down to about $2 a manicure. Olive and June also has press-ons if you want. What I love though, is that Olive and June each season is coming out with new colors. And I just got a set of spring and summer colors in quick dry polish. And they say this dries in about a minute. It seemed dry to me in about 30 seconds. It was not kidding about being quick dry. I also love the light colors in this set. There is a huge range. My favorite one is called Kitten. It's like a pinkish gray. The quick dry polish gives you full coverage in one or two coats. It lasts for more than five days and it is offered in more than 40 cruelty-free and vegan polishes. Olive and June just understands what's happening in our lives, that we need to move quickly, but we want to look great and feel great and have fun in the process. Visit oliveandjune.com slash pantsuit for 20% off your first system. That's O-L-I-V-E-A-N-D-J-U-N-E dot com slash P-A-N-T-S-U-I-T for 20% off your first Manny system. Sarah, I read the newsletter Politico Huddle faithfully. And every time there is a little blurb on the House Modernization Committee, my eyes would line up, put a spring in my step, because all of those blurbs would be about something actually getting done. Wow, this has happened and it has made our job so much easier. Or staffers say it has helped them so much. Or look at these members who usually can't work together on anything and they're both excited about this. And that was the only place I saw those stories until you sent a Washington Post piece around to our team about this committee and its chair and their final report. Yeah, we're going to share our conversation with Representative Kilmer and how the select committee got started. But it was such a brilliant cross-section of so many things we're interested in here. The modernization of Congress, who isn't interested in that? But also how to get difficult work done when you sit in a place of conflict and disagreement. and. You know, so many people on the committee, representatives on the committee gave interviews and talked about this work and talked about what they changed. And that's why we definitely wanted to invite him here so he could share all of that with us firsthand. Representative Kilmer, thank you so much for joining us. We are really excited about the work that you've been doing. I would love for you to take us back to the beginning of the Modernization Committee. What did you hope for when the committee started? How did it come to be? So prior to the 116th Congress, so like four and a half years ago, there were some discussions afoot about how to change the rules of the House. I think we were all recognizing that as members of Congress, we're part of an organization that, according to recent polling, is less popular than head lice, colonoscopies, and the rock band Nickelback. (laughs) And, you know, so we were like, well, well, you know, not knowing who's going to be in charge come January, how do you set some rules that may make the place function a little bit better? And so we would have these conversations, and it was a bipartisan group that was convened by some outside kind of reform-oriented stakeholders. We would have these discussions, you know, and some of it was about rules and, you know, how do we make sure that, you know, people are empowered to offer amendments and things like that. But every now and then someone would mention an issue like, hey, staff turnover is really high in this institution, and as a consequence, it's harder to solve problems because we're, we're 
you know, sort of eroding the institutional brains. And people would say like, yeah, that is a big problem. Like, it's not really a rules problem, but like, let's kind of stick that in like a parking lot that we'll look at later. You know, someone would say, we're really backwards when it comes to the use of technology. Congress has been described as an 18th century institution using 20th century technology to solve 21st century problems. That's pretty accurate. And, you know, I mean, literally when I came to Congress, I was given a pager. I still don't know what it is um, or how to use it. You know, so we said like, okay, so technology, that's kind of a problem, but it's not really a rules problem. Let's stick it kind of in a bucket. And then at the end of it, we had some ideas around how to change the rules, but we also had this big bucket of stuff that wasn't working properly. So our recommendation was, you know, and as we looked at it, about every 20 or 30 years or so, Congress realizes things aren't working the way they ought to, and they create a committee to do something about it. And so uh, our recommendation was, hey, let's create a committee to do something about it. And it was called the Select Committee on the Modernization of Congress, which makes us sound like we were the IT help desk, but we were sort of nicknamed the Fix Congress Committee. And our mission was pretty simple. It was make Congress work better for the American people. You likely didn't hear about our work on cable news. We were not a viral phenomenon on social media. It's possible you even missed watching the fireworks of our hearings on C-SPAN 8. <laughs> you, you know, we were able to get a lot of really important bipartisan work done with an eye towards making Congress work better. Can you tell us the difference between a select committee and a regular committee? Yeah, for sure. So a select committee is given a, a discrete task. And when that task is over, the committee disappears. So like the January 6th committee was an example of a select committee. There was a select committee on the climate crisis, which arguably they didn't solve the problem, but they did a lot of good work, like laying out a roadmap for how to um, address climate change. There was a select committee on economic disparity that you know really laid out a roadmap of here's some ideas to deal with that. So we were a select committee. We existed for four years and now the select committee has gone away. Now, interestingly, one of our final recommendations was we made two final recommendations. One. It, we shouldn't wait every 20 or 30 years to look at the effectiveness and uh, functionality of the institution. Most functional organizations mm -hmm. look at how, how they're doing more than every 20 or 30 years. So we recommended that every uh, three or four Congresses, as a matter of course, uh, a select committee like this should be created. And secondly, we said, you know, rather than making recommendations that kind of go into the ether, we should focus on implementing them. So we recommended the creation of a new subcommittee under a standing committee, the House Administration Committee, that is now focused on implementation. You know, thankfully, we've already, of the 202 recommendations that we passed, 45 have been fully implemented. About 70-something are on their way to implementation. And then there are a whole bunch that we still have to get to. And so that's the work of this subcommittee that was recently created. So how did you set your expectations, knowing that it was a select committee? Like, what did you hope to accomplish? How did you say... Well, we're not going to modernize Congress completely, but here are our expectations of when we will fulfill our purpose as a select committee. There was a lot that was in our charge that made our task difficult. You know, one, just the task of trying to fix Congress. Oftentimes I would tell people who are working on that and they'd either um, offer to pray for me or giggle. Um, <laughs> so, you know, that's a challenging task as, as it is. On top of that, the rule that established our committee created some interesting hurdles, but I think that, that we're pretty wise. One, our committee had an equal number of Democrats and Republicans, because I think if you're going to do lasting institutional change, it has to be bipartisan. Second, to make any recommendation, our, uh, the rule that established our committee required a two-thirds vote, um, which is also really difficult. And 
As a consequence, when I became chair of this committee, you know, one of the sort of mantras that I had is if you want Congress to work differently, you have to do things differently. So I'll give some examples of what we did. You know, one of the first things I did is I called my Republican counterpart, which in the first Congress that we worked on this was a guy named Tom Graves from Georgia, who was a terrific partner. He has since retired from Congress and his uh, seat was um, filled by Marjorie Taylor Greene, who you may have heard of. Oh my Um, gosh. You know, I called Tom and said, "Hey, I've got a, I've got kind of a crazy idea. Um, you know, when you when you start a committee, committee gets its budget, and usually the first thing that happens is you divide by two, sometimes two thirds, one third. Democrats get their part of the money. Republicans get their part of the money. Democrats use their part of the money to hire people with a Democratic background who put on blue jerseys. Republicans use their part of the money to hire people with a Republican background who put on red jerseys, and then they spend the rest of the time fighting with each other." And so I said to Tom, "Hey, here's a crazy idea. What if we don't do this? Like, what if we actually just hire one staff?" And some of them will be people with a Democratic background and some will be people with a Republican background, but we will make these hiring decisions together. And they're all just put on jerseys that say, hey, let's fix Congress. And to his credit, Tom said, sure, let's give it a shot. And that was foundational in terms of how our committee approached one another. It was with an eye towards solving problems, not with an eye towards being adversarial. Mm -hmm. We also, if you watch one of our hearings on C-SPAN, you probably have too much time on your hands. But if you watch one of our hearings on C-SPAN, you'll notice a few things. So for example, we didn't sit with Republicans on one side of a dais and Democrats on the other side. We staggered our seating. So, you know, if as a Democrat, I had a Republican on my left and on my right. Now, why did we do that? We did that because, you know, when you hear a witness say something interesting, like my genetic predisposition is to lean over to the person next to me and say, that was kind of interesting. What do you think about that? And in our committee, you did that leaning over next to someone from a different party. Mm. We didn't even sit at a dais. We sat around a round table. Why? Well, I don't know about you. I've never had a good conversation speaking to the back of somebody's head. Mm. And so in our committee, you were able to look each other in the eye and actually have dialogue. That was not cosmetic. You know, there's all sorts of interesting organizational psychology about like how to have a, a, an effective meeting and how to have a functional team. And we actually tried to incorporate a lot of that into the work of our committee. I would love to know how people responded initially. In my limited experience trying to modernize an institution not as big and difficult as Congress, when I brought these sort of relationship forward ideas to people, I met a lot of skepticism and some cynicism. And I just wonder how you met that in Congress. You know, it was cool. You know, one of the other things that we did that was really unusual, and and to my knowledge, we're the only committee in Congress that has done this. I've never been part of a functional operation that didn't at the beginning of its work say, hey, so what do we want to get done? So I had us do a bipartisan planning retreat. We actually got a room at the Library of Congress and we sat around a table and we talked about what we wanted to do. And the first thing that we did largely in an attempt to find some common threads among us, because we had, you know, very progressive Democrats, we had very conservative Republicans, and we had all sorts of folks in between. We started off by saying, hey, why did you come to Congress? And how has your service met or failed to meet your expectations of what drove you to run in the first place? And I'll tell you what, you know, if you've been a fly on the wall, I actually don't think you would have been able to know who the Democrats were and who the Republicans were. I really don't. And, you know, as a consequence, I think people came out of that exercise saying, hey, this is going to be different. This this work is going to be different. And people were pretty bought in from the beginning. And again, you know, I, I lucked out largely because we had people who wanted to be stewards of the institution that actually wanted to make the institution function better. 
there's this great quote that I've been staring at for four years of this work. And it's from a guy named John Gardner, who was a cabinet secretary in the Lyndon Johnson administration. And John Gardner talks about the importance of institutional stewardship. And he talks about being a loving critic. Hmm. He said, it's, you know, you can't be an uncritical lover because you sort of deny an institution of the uh, necessary improvement to actually make it function better. You actually, you know, have to have some semblance of a critical eye towards the function of an institution. But he also said you can't be an unloving critic because then you just treat the institution like the pinata at the party and bash it, which is, you know, obviously politically very popular in Congress. And you know, the best thing I can do, and I already cracked some jokes doing it, right, is to make fun of Congress. But you you actually have to care enough about the institution to want to improve it. And to the credit of the folks, almost without exception, over the course of two Congresses who served on the committee, they were all loving critics. What about your constituents? Were they supportive of this work? You mentioned that it's easier to to bash it. So how did it go over in your district that you invested this time here? I think generally the American people want Congress to function better. And I think people liked that we were engaged on that topic and that we were doing things differently. I mean, one of the things that keeps me up at night, there was an NBC News poll last year that 70% of Americans agree with the statement that America is so divided, it is now incapable of solving big problems. Mm. And I don't, and I don't think my constituents want to just accept that as fact. Well, I guess we're just not going to solve any big problems anymore. And you know, as a consequence, I think my constituents were largely bought into our work. You know, what the other thing they were bought into is just some of the stuff that we did. So one of the examples was, so we had these hearings related to civility and collaboration, which I think our constituents are pretty hungry for. You know, there's an exhaustion with how dysfunctional Congress is. We pulled together, you know, organizational psychologists and and management consultants and political scientists. We actually had a marriage counselor who testified at our hearing who founded the organization Braver Angels. And they gave us all sorts of suggestions around trying to foster civility and collaboration. And afterwards, the organizational psychologist said to me, hey, you know, you should talk to some sports coaches who took over teams that were kind of had bad culture and who turned them around. So I call up this um, NCAA football coach and I said, Coach, would you be willing to talk to me about fixing Congress? And he said, Derek, I don't know anything about Congress. And I said, well, I don't need you to know about Congress. Tell me how you fix a broken team. I said, you know, what do you, what do, you do when you have folks on the team who are actively trying to sabotage the team? And he said, well, I cut them. <laughs> and I said, well, we don't really have that option. <laughs> and he said, well, then I bench them. And I said, well, we don't really have that option either. And he said, let me ask you something. I said, shoot. He said, how do you do new player orientation? I said, well, we don't really have new players, said, but we do have, you know, new member orientation. He said, how does it work? And I said, you know, it's really funny that you asked this because it really works the wrong way. I said, you know, my colleagues tell stories of showing up for freshman orientation, literally being told, okay, Democrats, you sit on this bus and Republicans, you go on that bus. And most of the orientation process was designed to keep the two parties from interacting with each other. And this coach says to me, well, Derek, I don't know much about Congress, but it seems like you ought to stop doing that. <laughs> and so one of our recommendations was literally stop doing that, yeah. right? Like, you know, try to have some uh, bipartisan engagement uh, at the jump. You know, there are little things that really matter to members. You know, when uh, a member of Congress is coming on board, speaking of, of incoming freshmen, you know, they were largely blind, blind and didn't even have any sort of uh, staff help to help them transition into Congress. So we made a recommendation saying, 
you should be able to pay a transition staffer to help with your transition into Congress. And 95% of those folks actually get hired onto the office. That's been a real value in helping our new members be, uh, be better at their jobs. We made recommendations trying to make Congress a place that was better at recruiting and retaining and having more diverse staff. So why did we do that? Well, you know, we didn't do that to benefit ourselves. We did that to benefit the American people because, I mean, all you have to do is watch like the social media hearings where it seems like Congress doesn't know what it's talking about. And it's largely because Congress doesn't know what it's talking about. (laughs) And building up some brains and being able to hold on to talented people who know a lot about issues that matter to the American people will benefit the American people. We made a recommendation so that Congress could, you know, sort of fulfill its Article One responsibility, the power of the purse, and that it could fund projects in local communities. Um, that recommendation was, you know, written with some important guardrails to prevent abuse. That was a bipartisan recommendation. And the Appropriations Committee has done that. And as a consequence, you know, you can look in district after district and there's community projects that are getting funded. You know, in my district, there's a men's shelter for people experiencing homelessness that is now getting funded as a consequence of that. There's a a soup kitchen, um, a food bank that received funding. There are three coastal tribes in my district that got funding to try to move to higher ground because they're getting washed off the planet by climate change. You know, these things wouldn't have happened, but for some of the recommendations that our committee made. Um, And there's a whole bunch of others, right? We made 202 recommendations, but those are just a few examples of things that I think actually matter to the folks we represent. When we talk about Congress, I think we can get really consumed with systemic issues. Gerrymandering, you know, I am obsessed with how few congressional members we have. Before the Washington Post op-ed came out, I've been preaching this gospel for years and years, which is there's just not enough. We need more representatives in the House of Representatives for the size of our population. So how did you focus on achievable things without feeling all the time like we have all these big procedural, systemic, institutional challenges in front of us that tie our hands? How did you not become sort of discouraged and cynical in the face of some bigger, and how do we make those bigger changes too, that that as well? Yeah, (laughs) I think it really matters. You know, that one of the, I mentioned the high bar that was created for our committee. And in the end, unfortunately, that made it difficult to take up issues that I think are really foundational in terms of being able to fix Congress. Campaign finance reform is one of them. You always also hear about the the representatives going back home all the time and how that changed with the contract for America. That's like a very common narrative, I think, around the yeah. dysfunction of Congress is that there's no socialization, which you're sort of getting at with that new member orientation. You know, there are some big ticket items like partisan gerrymandering and campaign finance. And I would argue the role of media and social media that we just weren't able to crack the code on certainly not in a way that could get a super majority vote out of mm. our committee. To my chagrin, I, I you know I actually do think if Congress wants to get serious about making things work better for the American people, it simply simply put it has to has to do those things. It has to address money in politics. It has to look at things like um how district boundaries are drawn. It has to look at how we choose our primary candidates. Mm-hmm. Um there are states that have done some interesting stuff around ranked choice voting or around, you know, as the state of Washington and California have done top two primaries that I think have limited, at least in some way, some of the polarization that we've seen in our country. You know, if we want to get serious about doing that in a big systemic way, then 
I think having that happen on a national basis would be to our benefit. Nevertheless, what we what we said is, well, let's get done the things we can get done. Mm. You know, so you just mentioned, you know, the fact that Congress, you know, spends a lot of time in their districts. You know, one of the big problems is Congress spends too much time on trains and airplanes. Mm-hmm. You know, if you look at before the pandemic, um, I, I think I'm going to get these numbers right, but it's been a little while since I've used them. In 2019, before the pandemic, Congress was in session 66 travel days, 65 full days. There were actually more travel days than full days. So for a travel day, just for me as a West Coast member, what that means is on a Monday morning, we have votes Monday night. Monday morning, I get up at whatever, five, I drive to the airport, I get on an eight o'clock flight, I land in DC at 4.30, and I vote at 6.30. Usually it's what they call bed check vote, right? One or two votes. Then I'm there all day Tuesday, all day Wednesday. Thursday is a travel day, so we usually vote by before noon on Thursday. And then as a West Coast member, I take a bunch of meetings between then and my 5.40 p.m. flight, and I fly back to Washington State on Thursday night. And then Friday, Saturday, Sunday, I'm in the district. And then the next week, rinse, wash, repeat. Well, if you think about that, what that means is Congress is spending a lot of time. Like, listen, I love the people of Alaska Airlines, but I'm spending more time (laughs) with people of Alaska Airlines than you know, being able to do productive work, right? right? Like, wh- why does that matter? For what it's worth, I use my time on Alaska Airlines to write constituent letters and try to be productive or to watch season three of The Mandalorian as I did <laughs> the last So why does that matter? Well, if you want Congress to be a place where tough problems are solved, mm-hmm. one, Congress has to be there. And two, most of that difficult problem solving happens in committees. Now, here's the problem. Committees generally meet on those two days a week that you're there, those two full days a week that you're there. The average member is on, the average is 5.4 committees and subcommittees, all of which meet during those two days. So, you know, if you're watching a committee hearing on C-SPAN and it looks like members of Congress aren't there, it's because they're probably in one of their other three hearings that are scheduled for the exact same time. Mm -hmm. And what that means is members sort of pinball from committee to committee by and large, using the time just to speechify for five minutes, to mm-hmm. throw something up on social media, trying to show how sharp they are, but not actually sitting in committee, understanding issues, and trying to solve significant problems. So one of our recommendations was, hey, we got to fix that. We got to fix that one, but at the very least, having more full days than travel days. Two, you know, every high school and college in America has figured out how to deconflict the calendar. Congress has not. And so one of our recommendations was to quote the beginning of the TV show, The Six Million Dollar Man, we have the technology, we know how to fix it. Let's use technology to deconflict the calendar, at least somewhat, so that members are actually able to go to committee and be constructive and have Congress work better. So there's a little bit about that presence in D.C. that's about relationships that certainly matters. But I actually think the bigger thing is the fact that Congress isn't there as much as it ought to be, and that when it is there, there's so much scheduled conflict means that the institution is less functional and less able to solve big problems. Well, and I have to believe that once you open up a little space where people can see a different way, that creates momentum for bigger changes, right? Once you say, oh, this feels really good to be able to function and go to committees and be present, how else could we make this even better? You know, I, I applaud the members who are like, I'm moving here. I have little kids. I can't do this, you know, <laughs> like, um, and I think hopefully we will create space for more people and for constituents to understand that as well. I hope so too. 
you know, one of the things that we looked at and we weren't able to land the plane on, but I actually think would make sense is, you know, you could build a calendar where members of Congress flew in Monday nights, as we do right now, stay all the way through Friday at five o'clock and then start the next Monday at 9 a.m. For a West Coast member like me, I'd have to stay on the East Coast, which might, to your point, be, you know, not terrible from a relationship standpoint with my colleagues and then go the next week Monday at 9 a.m. all the way through Friday. You can still do Friday at noon. And the funny thing is, and then you could have the next two weeks in your district. Mm -hmm. The interesting math that happens from that is you actually have more time in D.C., more time in the district. The only thing you have less time is me spending less time with the truly delightful people (laughs) of Alaska Airlines, right? That's that's the only thing you miss out on. Yeah. If you could take one learning from the way you conducted this committee – and give it to all of the other committees in the House. One piece of advice for their chairs on how to make their committees more functional, what would it be? I actually do think having a bipartisan planning retreat at the beginning matters. Listen, you're not going to get agreement on everything. You you just won't. And there's some committees where you may not get agreement on anything. But again, I, I actually do think there's value in having Democrats and Republicans spend the better part of a day sitting in a room saying, hey, here's what we got planned. Mm-hmm. And you guys aren't going to like some of this and we're not going to like some of what you want to do, but let's actually have dialogue. Most functional organizations do that. So I think that's probably the biggest. Did you feel finished when your work wrapped up? I thought we had done a lot and I'm excited that there's this subcommittee that's created on implementation because I don't, I don't think organizational improvement is something where you just check a box and you're done. I think it has to happen on an ongoing basis I also, you know, it's funny, when our committee started, we had this presentation from the Congressional Research Service about the history of these reform committees. And, you know, the person who ran through it would say, like, you know, in the failed committee of 19, blah, 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 you know, in the, like, somewhat successful committee of this year, you know, and afterwards I said, can we all just agree that we want to be described by history as, like, one of the successful committees, not one of the failed committees? Which is why, as an aside, like, most of these committees write a white paper, in essence. They make a bunch of recommendations. And the implementation part doesn't start till after the committee is no longer in existence. We made an intentional decision to do it differently, to say we're going to make recommendations and we're going to work on implementation in real time because Mm. we want to make sure this happens. And that's why already 45 of our 202 recommendations got implemented and about 70 something have have seen some progress because we, we decided to focus in real time on it. So we're not done. There are some big plate tectonic kind of issues that influence the functionality of Congress. There there just are. And those, I think, need some attention, too. Well, thank you for your work and congratulations to you. It is heart and soul work to be a loving mm-hmm. critic. Thank you. I'm so glad that you and your committee brought that to Congress. Thanks. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin and I have added ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies. So we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you Ritual for that. 
Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, it could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water, leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy filtered shower head is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze, and its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy filtered showerhead purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code pantsuit at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. Well, Representative Kilmer, we always end our show talking about what's in our minds outside of politics. And we learned at the beginning of this conversation that you and Sarah share a love for national holidays and thought we could we could chat with you about that for a minute. Yeah, it's so sad we weren't recording because we discovered that you and I are actually best friends. Um, <laughs> and it's really exciting for me to discover that. I don't have a lot of people who share my passion for national holidays the weird, wacky holidays that exist every day. It started because we're recording the day after Daylight Savings Time, and I said, it's National Napping Day. And you said, I also was looking at the national holidays today because when when did you discover this passion that we share? It's been, I mean, at least a year. I've tried to track what the weird day it is for at least a year. And I think it randomly happened on something like Bacon Day because <laughs> I heard on the radio that it was Bacon Day, and I'm like, "Yeah, it is. Yeah. Um, let's celebrate." <laughs> That's right. 
So I, you know, I found some website that told me what national day it is and it brought me great joy. And I've alerted you to that you can subscribe and get them in your inbox every day, which is like next level. I had a wall calendar last year that told me, and I think through the wall calendar, I got subscribed. I started doing it during COVID lockdown with my kids and homeschooling because a lot of times it would like give us something fun to do that day. Like make, I love the, I love the food ones. I love the like you know, pineapple upside down day. Today is coconut tort day. I don't think I'll be making a coconut tort because that requires a little more prep. But I would like (laughs) map out like, is there any food we want to try? Is there any historical event we want to look up? It just adds a little fun and flavor to every day. It's so, so delightful. I'm with you. We just uh, celebrated National Pancake Day just a week or two ago. National Waffle Day is coming up later this month. I'm, a I'm more of a pancake guy than a waffle guy. Of course you are, because so am I, and we're best friends now. So that makes sense. <laughs> um, I just think to listen, I was telling you, I love the viral video of the woman complaining about the heat. And she says, every day can't be a holiday, which is the funniest part of that video to me, which is ironic because I actually enjoy the idea that every day can, in fact, be a holiday. Now, are you a birthday person? Because I feel like the Venn diagram of like holiday people and the people who want to celebrate their birthday every year at max capacity must be a lot of overlap. Well, so I have a weird, I'm a new year's baby. So (gasps) everybody celebrates my birthday. That's fun though. Do you like that? Well, do you like that overlap? Do you like the birthday on a holiday? It has its benefits in that people remember it. So I get a lot like after new year's, uh, after the buzzer sounds, I get a lot of texts and calls and that's delightful. You know, growing up, I got a lot of joint Christmas birthday presents, mm-hmm. which was sort of a drag. No, so. that's not okay. So have you discovered a national wacky holiday that's like your favorite besides Bacon Day? You know what? Uh, we're about to have it. Pie Day. I love, I love pie, pie Day. What kind of pie? Yeah. Do you do pizza? Do you do dessert pie? There are very many pie options when you're celebrating that day. Dessert pie. I like all the berry pies. Okay. Okay. When I grew up, we had this amazing raspberry pie. Ooh. It was my neighbor's recipe, and it was tremendous. Thank you to the late Elizabeth Hodges for her delicious raspberry pie recipe. I like the kind of mixed berry pies, yep. like cherry pie. We're all in here, though. We eat a pizza. We eat a quiche nice. for breakfast. Like, let's just all in. I really like pie day because everybody celebrates. I like it when it's a wacky holiday that we've all embraced. I feel like we're pretty close with donut day. Like, Dunkin' Donuts will give you a free donut. I love the mm-hmm. ones where we're like, all in. Everybody's like, this is the day we're celebrating something completely quotidian. I just love it. Do you have a favorite? I do like pie day. I do love donut day. I mean, I like the ones that are just my favorite foods and I feel like we get to celebrate. Like I love chocolate cake day. I'm a big fan of chocolate cake day and chocolate chip cookie day. Couldn't tell you what days they are because I need it to be a surprise every year, but (laughs) I love it when it shows up. I feel like you all are ignoring talk like a pirate day, which is True. Indisputably the best of these holidays, especially if you have kids. Yes. And there's also like backwards day. I like backwards day. Um, Mm -hmm. I think that's a fun one where you switch things around. And I I mean, April Fool's Day. That's another one we kind of all celebrate. But it depends on if you're a prankster, if you like a mean prank or a funny prank. In this line of work, I feel like I'm constantly getting mean pranks. (laughs) (laughs) I get enough of that. I get enough of that. Well, Well, thank you so much for joining us for this little delightful bonus. I'm going to just name this like National Holiday Celebration Day. I'm just going to declare it myself. You're in Congress. You can make that happen. I'm going to write a bill, Sarah. Uh, (laughs) You can testify and support. Absolutely. Thank you to Representative Kilmer. Thank you to all of you who joined us here today. Please join us on our premium community as we get ready 
for the final season of Succession. And listen, it's not like that's the only thing on our premium content. We will still be producing more to say's and good morning and all kinds of content. So if you haven't checked out our premium channels, they make the work we do here possible. It is that simple. We would not be able to do Pantsuit Politics and have this amazing team that produces this podcast were it not for our premium members and their financial support. We will be back in your ears on Tuesday. And until then, keep it nuanced, y'all. Pantsuit Politics is produced by Studio D Podcast Production. Elise Knapp is our managing director. Maggie Penton is our community engagement manager. Dante Lima is the composer and performer of our theme music. Our show is listener-supported. Special thanks to our executive producers. Martha Brunitsky. Allie Edwards. Janice Elliott. Sarah Greenup. Julie Haller. Helen Handley. Tiffany Hassler. Emily Holliday. Katie Johnson. Katina Zuganellis-Kasling. Barry Kaufman. Molly Kors. Catherine Vollmer. Lori Ladau. Lily McClure. Linda Daniel. Emily Neasley. The Pettins! Tawny Peterson. Tracy Putoff. Sarah Ralph. Jeremy Sequoia. Katie Steigers. Karen True. Annika Uveline. Nick and Elisa Valelli. Amy Whited. Emily Helen Olson. Lee Shea McDonough. Morgan McHugh. Jeff Davis. Melinda Johnston. Michelle Wood. Joshua Allen. Nicole Berkless, Paula Bremer, and Tim Miller.